Well, I know that you guys are probably thinking what was coming was now the portion of ministry in the biography of Jesus, and I did intend to do that this week, but as I started it, something kind of caught my heart and something that I really felt like well, I don't know why, but I felt like the Lord burdened me for it, and uh, so I'm going to just take one week here, just a detour to, to deal with this particular text, and uh, I'm hopeful that the Lord is in it, that it will benefit your soul. So I want you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, I want to read the last two verses, 23 and 24. Here's what it says, Paul concluding to the church. He says, Peace be to the brothers, in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, I've, I've spoken on this passage before, probably before I think I even knew almost any of you. It was when we were still at the lakes. Um, the only person that remembered it was Aaron, so I don't know if anybody else remembers it. But I want to return to this passage again for the same reason that I spoke on it before. So let me give you a bit of background as to why I did that and help you see why I want to spend some time here this morning. The first time I spoke on this text was, as I said, when we were still members of the lakes. And at that time, we had disciplined three men out of the church. Uh, and those people had no longer professed to be Christians. They had rejected the faith. And we were actually in the process of disciplining a fourth person out of the church for the same problems. These were people that had rejected the historic Christian faith, had gone off into all kinds of heresy. And this fourth person that was being put out of the church was a good friend of mine. He was actually a friend of mine that we went, uh, we went to a different church together years before that. And the Lord had brought us out. It was a very unhealthy, ungodly church. And the Lord actually brought us out of that church together into uh, the lakes at the time. And so we had disciplined three people out. We were now disciplining this fourth man who was a good friend of mine. And I don't, I don't know how, in terms of how broad I've spoken about this before, but I know I've told some of you privately at different times that that season was undoubtedly the most difficult season of my Christian life. Um, not only because we were disciplining people out of the church, that was difficult in and of itself, but because one of them was a good friend of mine. And I had, I had shared in fellowship with him and conversations with him, had dinner with him and his family a, a, a fair number of times, and so when this had taken place, I entered into, which was for sure the darkest season of my Christian life, a lot of depression, a lot of doubts, a lot of fears, pretty much anything that you could think of that the devil would use to assault a person's soul, uh, I was under it. And it was a long time. It was, it was over a year for sure. Um, I don't know how long it was, but, but brethren, it was so dark and so gloomy, um, there is... I would never wish that kind of thing upon anybody. But it was actually in the midst of that that I preached this text. Uh, it was the hardest sermon I ever preached in my life. And, uh, because, because you don't want to preach when you're in that 
but I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice. You've got to move forward. But I, I preached this text during that season, and it was because when I came across it in my own reading of the Scripture, brethren, I felt like I needed it. I needed it for myself. And not only did I need it for myself, I felt like the people around me needed this text. Because we were watching people who had professed the same Christ that we professed to love now abandon Him and leave and go off into the world. And we needed something that would, that would get a good grip upon us, help us to firm up our foundation here and our hope in Christ. And I felt the need to do that for my own soul. I felt the need to do that for my brothers and sisters that were around me to tell them, Brethren, we have a, a race that we have not yet finished, and we cannot bow out of this thing. We were not done. If other people were going to quit the, the race mid-stride, we needed something to continue to keep our eyes focused upon Christ and to continue to run that race with endurance to the end. To continue, even if necessary, if it's just putting one foot in front of the other day by day to press onward and not abandon Christ. To not walk away. So I want to come back to this right now for a reason that's somewhat similar. Uh, as you guys, well most of you anyway, know we've had two cases of discipline in this church where we've put out now two people that were part of this body, that were, that were members. Brethren, they were part of your family. And, and we've had to remove them. And you know they've essentially just rejected Christ. They've rejected the message they said to believe. And uh, as Peter says it in 2 Peter 2, they have now denied the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And uh, we continue to pray, of course, that God would bring them back, that God would restore them to repentance and those kinds of things. But, brother, my concern is this. And I don't know if this is the case, but... But I thought about this a lot this week. I don't know if enough has been said after those cases of discipline to encourage you all. I don't know if enough has been said about that whole thing when they were handled. Uh, because what I mean is this, I don't know where each of your hearts are at. I don't know where each of your hearts were at at each of those cases. I maybe have talked to a few of you individually but as a church, how have we felt internally after putting out people that we baptized and made professions of faith before you? So my concern is this. I, I don't know how you've been affected. I don't even know if you have been affected. Maybe those two people that did abandon Christ and we did put out of, those uh, out of this church... Maybe those two people affected you the same way my friend did when we put him out of the church years ago. And maybe the harder part is even that if it has affected you very deeply, maybe nobody even knows about it because it's not been discussed. It's just assumed. Maybe you've been affected, but you don't even know to what depths you've been affected. Brethren, for, for a long time when that was happening to me, I was in I was in in depression and, and despair, and I didn't even know why it was. You know, David, as he says in the Psalms, why are you cast down, O my soul? I had, I had to literally get before the Lord and begin to question myself. Why is this happening? And I came to realize that that was the cause of it. 
And there may be some piece to this where when you watch people that got baptized with you and stood up here and said, I'm going to follow Christ, and then they don't follow Christ and they walk away, for that not to have an effect on the heart. How is that even possible? It, it does, brother, and it has an effect on it. And so the reason I want to come to this text again is because I'm wanting to, in some sense, encourage you all to continue to run the race, to continue to press on in faith, to love Christ, to love Him, to love Him, as it says here, with a love that is incorruptible. That's been my burden, and I don't know why the Lord has brought me to it, but uh, I, I want it to be an encouragement to you, because in the years that I have been a Christian, I have seen a lot more people than I care to count that have walked away from the faith. I have seen a lot more people than I care to think about, to be honest with you, that have abandoned their love of Christ. They would have said this before, but now they don't say this anymore. So I want to somewhat ask the question of us all. In 5, 10, 15, 20 years, are we all going to still be worshiping Christ together? Have you set your heart, are you determined for it to be so? That I'm not going to walk away from Christ. That my love for Christ is not going to be corrupted. you got to determine it for yourself, brethren. you got to determine it. And I am desperate to see this. That all of you would lay your eyes upon Christ. And that He would have all of your affection. All of your passion would be for Him. And to see you all finish the race. Now, of course, I might be dead by the time some of you finish the race. But I, my desire is to know that, that your love for Christ won't be corrupted in the end. I mean, I want it for myself, undoubtedly. But as a, a shepherd of, of the flock here, I can very much sympathize with Paul when he writes in Romans 9 that I could even wish myself accursed for the sake of some of you or for the sake of all of you. To know that the sheep will make it safely into the, the, what's the word I'm thinking of here? Stable, that's the word. The fold. <laughs> well, what I'm looking for is, is this. To know that the sheep will make it back safely into the stable of God. Brethren, this is my burden. I want you all to make it to the end. I don't want any of you taken by the wolves. I don't want any of you running off in your own way or any number of things that might lead the sheep astray. So this is why we're here this week. So I want to do two things with this text. I want to ask two very simple questions. I don't have a lot of extensive things to pull out of here. I want to ask two questions. The first one is this. Do you have love for Jesus Christ? Do you have love for Christ? And the second one is this. Is that love incorruptible? Because that's what Paul tells us here. And honestly, we have to deal with it in sort of that fashion because it does us no good to talk about incorruptible love if we have no love in the first place to even speak of. So let's deal with this first thing here. Paul says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now if we just take that first part, since we're going to deal with the incorruptible thing in a minute, just put that off over the side. 
if we take this first part, Paul says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, in some form, the, the, the blessing in, in contradiction to the cursing that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Listen to this. Here's what Paul says there. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So you have two sides. You have a blessing and you have a curse. And these things kind of struck me because the first time I, I preached on this text, I didn't even really think about this. And being that I just had gone through the Pentateuch and am now uh, in Joshua and Judges and, and just digging into that, I, I found here something that really struck me. These things kind of function as the New Testament version of what happens in Joshua chapter 8. If you remember, as before Israel goes into the promised land, Moses tells them what they need to do after they get in there. And he tells them, when you guys get in there, you need to have half the people stand on Mount Ebal, and you need to have half the people stand on, uh, stand on Mount Gerizim. And you're going to have this covenant renewal ceremony there and renewing the covenant of Yahweh. And so when they get in there, Joshua sets up this altar on Mount Ebal, and he gets half the people there and half the people on Mount Gerizim. And the people shout to one another across this valley. On one side, they shout cursings. If you don't obey Yahweh, cursed be you. And they list a bunch of different things on there. And then from the other side, they shout back blessing. Blessed are those who obey Yahweh and His covenant. And so here, this, these two statements for us kind of function in this way from Paul. If you can imagine it, Paul climbs up on top of Mount Gerizim and he shouts, To all those who love Jesus Christ, grace will be for you. Then he goes and climbs up Mount Ebal and he says, Anyone who has no love for the Lord will be accursed. There is a lot of weightiness in these statements for us. Brother, and of course, there's great blessing in, in loving Christ. I mean, is grace not, do you desire grace? I desire grace. I want grace. I want mercy. I want those kind of things. Don't you want those kind of things? Those are good things. You should want grace from God. But brethren, it says here that it is dependent upon you loving Christ. You want grace? You need to love Christ. That's what he says. Grace for all those who love our Lord Jesus. No love for Christ, no grace from God. This is fundamental for us. And brethren, do not make any mistake about it. Paul is commanding for people to love Jesus Christ. He is commanding love for Jesus Christ. He pronounces a curse on anyone who doesn't love Christ. We get it put this way in Psalm chapter 2. Kiss the Son is a reverence, of course, to Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish. Now let me ask you, why do you think He says, kiss the Son? He could have said, bow down in fear of the Son. He could have said, tremble. I mean, and of course, there are those kinds of things in the Psalms. Even in Psalm 2, there's that sense there. But why does He tell him, kiss the Son? Brethren, it's because a kiss is a sign of affection, is it not? That's the kind of thing that we're called to. To kiss the Son is a sign that you love Him, that your affection is for Him. You remember that scene in Luke chapter 7. 
Mary, Martha's sister, this is the first time that we see her encounter Jesus. Now, in that scene, she's only said to be a sinful woman. We don't have her name yet. But she comes to Jesus in the house of Simon this Pharisee. And she brings this alabaster flask in with her, filled with this ointment. She begins to weep and anoint Jesus' feet and wash His feet with her hair. And that Pharisee rejects, rebukes Jesus. And he says to him this, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then Jesus tells Simon this story. And the intent is for him to basically show Simon what she is doing is showing that she loves me and that her affection is for me. And the point is for him to say, Simon, however, how you have acted has shown that you have nothing but contempt for me. You know what he tells him? He tells him this. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see this? Jesus comes into this man's house. And listen, even back then, now we may not do it today for whatever reason, uncomfortability or whatever, you know, cultural things, I don't know. Bob Jennings said when he used to go uh, visit um, in... Uh, I can't remember now where he, where he went. Somewhere over in Eastern Europe, they would still kiss on the cheek. And so he'd walked into the church and all these people would come and start kissing him on the cheek. But nevertheless, in this scene, Jesus shows up and that's a sign of affection. And that Pharisee offers him no kiss, no sign of affection, no sign of love, no sign of acceptance. Brethren, what an awful statement to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ, especially on that final day. You gave me no kiss. Why is it that way? Brethren, why is it such an awful thing? Because what's the alternative in Psalm 2 if you don't kiss the Son? You perish. You're destroyed. Brethren, to put it very simply, if you do, people do not come to the Son of the living God, in love, and offer Him a holy kiss of affection, they go to hell. It's that simple, brethren. You don't come and you offer Jesus Christ a kiss, a holy kiss of affection, you will go to hell forever. It's the issue of a heart. That's what's at stake here. This is why Paul is putting it this way. This is why his curse, it's such a strong statement. Any who don't have love for the Lord, let Him be accursed. Brother, it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of external conformity to God's rules. It's a matter of some internal fidelity to Christ. That's what we're dealing with here. And I will grant you, yes, internal fidelity, internal love for Christ will result in external conformity to what He desires. But they're not one and the same. Brethren, Christ is not looking for people to come into Him and, you know, just do what He says because they're afraid of what consequences might come. That's not what Christ is looking for. He's looking for people who love Him, 
who when he comes into their house, they offer him a kiss. They offer him some affection. He's not just looking for, for Simon when he goes into his house to give him the water because, oh, well, you know, the law says I've got to give you the water to wash your feet. But he's got no real heart to do it. Brethren, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, Paul says. It is a call for adoration to Christ. And without it, it's cursing. So what I want to ask you then is, what does it look like? What does love for Christ look like? What might be the sort of defining characteristics of what it looks like when someone loves Jesus Christ? Again, I'm not going to deal with obedience to commands at this point. I recognize that Jesus does say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I know that that's in the Bible. I know that keeping the commandments of Christ is an aspect of what it looks like to love Jesus Christ. But, brethren, you know this is the fact. Can people obey things that Jesus tells them to do and not want to do it? They can do that. They can do that. That happens all the time, actually. But you know what? Let me tell you something. To give up all of the wicked things that you love and you wish you could do because you're just not allowed to anymore, that's not love for Christ. That is not what this looks like. Love is a matter of the heart. And again, I recognize that what we do flows out of the heart. If you really love Jesus, you will look different. There's no doubt about that kind of thing. But I want to deal with the foundational thing, the heart issue. What does Jesus say? What is in the heart flows out, right? So what do we, what's the foundational thing? It's what's in the heart. That's the foundational issue. The, what, what, is, what is external is just what's produced because of what's already in the heart. So I want to deal with the foundational thing, the heart, the affections. And I have two texts for us. The first one, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. I'm going to read 1, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this text is, uh, can be a bit confusing and odd, uh, but I think after you kind of see what it says, it may be like it is for me, one of, the, one of your favorites in the Bible. What Paul is doing is contrasting two groups of people. He's contrasting one, the Jews who call themselves the people of God, and they rely upon circumcision. They think that they're God's people because of that. And on the other hand, the second group is those who are the true people of God. I said, well, that's not even in the passage. Well, here's why. The first group, the Jews, Paul is going to say, these are those who mutilate the flesh. This is Paul's sort of way of talking about Jewish circumcision. He's saying to them, you look out for them. You look out for the dogs. You look out for the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Why? Because they're going to lead you away from Christ. Well, how are they going to lead you away from Christ? Because they're going to lead you into those kind of things. They're going to lead you away from the thing that's completely satisfactory in God's eyes in Christ, and they're going to want to lead you back into slavery. They're going to want to lead you back into law-keeping. They're going to want to lead you back away into Judaism again. 
He says, look out for that stuff. Don't let them do that kind of thing. But what's interesting here is the second group of people, Paul calls them the circumcision. (laughs) What in the world? Why does he do that? Well, Paul is undoubtedly, of course, not using this kind of terminology literally. It's this sort of tongue-in-cheek way of Paul mocking what it was that these people were about. What was the primary thing for the Jews? Well, the circumcision. If, and even in the early church, you remember Acts 15. You see, I mean, you see it all over the place in the New Testament. But part of what was happening was the Gentiles were being basically put up on this pedestal. And, and the Jews were saying, how can they be part of the people of God without circumcision? It's not possible. They need to be circumcised. They've got to obey the laws of Moses. This is the kind of thing that was going on. And so Paul is using this verbiage not to necessarily say that, that we are the ones who are really, you know, uh, the ones who are circumcised over here, and, and you guys just say you were. But for Paul, he's saying, look, there's some people who might be circumcised in the flesh, and those are the ones that mutilate the flesh. But there's some other people over here, and they are the real circumcision, the true people of God. This is the kind of language Paul is often using. In Romans chapter 9, what does he say? There's those who are Israel, and then those who are of Israel who are not of Israel. Well, how does he use that kind of language? Because there's two, there's two Israels at play. There's one that's physical, and there's one that's a spiritual one. And undoubtedly, you can be part of the, the physical one and be part of the spiritual one. But you can be part of the spiritual one and never have nothing to do with the physical one. The idea is that there's, this, there's a true Jew. There's a true Israel. There's a true circumcision. Who are those who are the children of Abraham? Paul asks in Galatians. Those of faith are the children of Abraham. This is the kind of thing that Paul is constantly dealing with through his letters. And so here he says, we are the circumcision. You are. You guys aren't even circumcised over there. Yeah, but we're the real circumcision. Why? Why is that the case, Paul? And he gives an answer here. This is why. He's going to give a list of characteristics of those who are truly the people of God, who are truly the circumcised in heart, not just in the flesh, but in the heart, as it said in Deuteronomy. He gives us three things. They, one, worship by the Spirit of God. Now, you know where that comes from, John chapter 4. They, the second thing, they glory in Christ Jesus. And the third thing, this is the one that hits at the heart of the difference between Judaism and Christianity. They put no confidence in the flesh. None. No confidence in the flesh, brethren. Uh, there was a guy I was talking to one time. Uh, I don't know if any of you uh, know what this is or ever engaged in, in, in anybody who believed it, but there's different groups, Hebrew Israelites and different groups that think that they are true Israel. Uh, and they think so simply because of their skin color. Now, this guy was telling me he was, he was a true Jew, a true Israelite. And I said, oh, me too. <laughs> and I knew where he was going. So I said, oh, me too. And uh, he kind of looked at me all weird because he didn't probably expect that. And I said, you know what? You know what characterizes those who are the true Jews? They put no confidence in the flesh. Do you have confidence in your flesh? And he didn't have anything to say because you know what? He did. He had confidence in the fact that his skin color was a certain way. That was his hope. Not in Jesus Christ. Brethren, they put no confidence in the flesh. So these are the three things listed here. Now, I would love to deal with all of them, but I just can't, and and I really only want to focus on one, and it's the second one that's listed in this text. A glory in Christ Jesus. So when we're talking about what it means 
to love Christ. This is, what, this is what we're dealing with here, right? Paul says, grace be to all those who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. So when we're talking about what it is to love Christ. Well, brethren, it means this for sure, to glory in Christ Jesus. Brethren, those who have been saved from the wrath of Almighty God by the sacrifice of another, by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, brethren, they glory in Him. Who was the sacrifice on their behalf? The one who saved them from the wrath of that God that was coming against them. What does it mean that they glory in Him? Well, it means that He's their greatest object of worship. That He's their greatest praise. He's their greatest hope. Brethren, you find me a man who glories in Christ Jesus. And you will find yourself one who loves His Redeemer. Those two things are not separated from one another. And you know what? This is the thing that, that really helps, I think, in terms of believing this text to be at the heart of what it means to love Jesus Christ. Because this is true even of the weakest of saints. This is true even of God's people who are in the pit of despair and, and just everything in their life is going dark as it was for me in that season. Even for the weakest of God's saints, when you begin to speak to them about Jesus Christ, something in the heart lights up. They may not even know whether or not they are really true Christians. They may not even really know where they stand with the Lord. But if you talk to them about Jesus Christ, something lights up, brethren. They have a hope. They have a joy in Jesus Christ. that They find their satisfaction in Him. They find Him totally sufficient. Well, if that's it, if all I got to do is hope in Him, I'm going to hope in Him. It's like it's everything. That's it. They're, they're totally satisfied to have Christ and hope in Him. That little bit of light is there, even for the weakest of God's saints. Brethren, they glory in Christ. They may not have anything else. They may not think that they walk in perfect ways. They may not think that, that their life looks the way it looks. They may not think they read their Bible enough. They may not think they're praying enough. They may not think everything is falling. They may think, you know what, my friend just walked away and I'm, I'm doubting and I got all this. But brethren, if you lay before them Christ, if the heart lights up in joy, and they, they glory in Christ Jesus, I love Christ. Brethren, that is true. That is true of all those who love Jesus. They glory in Christ. Listen to these words. I don't even know if we've ever sang this hymn here, but I will glory in my Redeemer. My life He bought, my love He owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in Him alone. That's the kind of thing that comes from the heart. Brother, when we love Jesus Christ, we glory in our Redeemer. My love He owns. I have no longings for another. I am satisfied in Him alone. To glory in Christ is to boast in Christ. What else do you have to boast in? Anybody here want to boast in anything but Christ? I don't want to. I have nothing to offer the Lord. I want to boast in Christ and in Him alone what He did for me. To glory in Christ is to rejoice in Christ. It's to exalt Christ. It's this, Psalm 33.1, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise befits the upright. That's the kind of thing it is. It's Psalm 105, 2 through 3. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. 
I had a lot of other psalms in here to quote, but it took up all my time, so I'm not going to quote the rest of them. But you can go read the psalms. You see this thing over and over and over again, brethren. This is what it looks like to glory in Christ. And you've seen, uh, maybe they were in your BC days, before Christ days, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you still like them now. I don't know. But you've all seen the, the sort of love story musical things, right? And what happens when the guy who really loves this girl you know, he drops her off, and then he begins to walk away down the street by himself. What does he do? He, well, he jumps with joy, and he starts to sing. That's the whole thing, right? He's filled with this affection, this love, and he just wants to sing out. It's just coming. It just flows out from inside of him. Brethren, have you ever been so joyful that you just start to sing? I've been there before. You ever been so joyful in the Lord that you start to sing to Him? That's the kind of thing that we're dealing with here. That's what the psalmist is getting at. I mean, what does it mean to glory in Christ? In some sense, brother, it means that you want to sing to Him. That doesn't mean that that's the only thing that's there, but you guys can relate to that kind of thing. You guys can relate to such joy that I just want to sing. We know what that is. For the heart to overflow with love and affection and glory in Him. They just want to sing to Him. Sing to Him a song. Sing to Him a song of praise. Sing to Him a song of love even. And maybe that, we hear that and we think, ooh, that's kind of weird, right? But look, you go take a look. You don't have to do it now. but You go look at Psalm 45 and you will see that it speaks of Jesus Christ as the most handsome or lovely of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon His lips. And then it talks about He is, O Mighty One, ride out in splendor and majesty. Ride out in victory with a sword upon your side. And then you look at that superscription, and you will find that it says, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a love song. This is a song about Jesus Christ. Brethren, this song is about a warrior who goes out to slay his enemies. A love song? <laughs> yeah, it's a love song because they love the king. That's why it's a love song. You know, you could sing a love song and say, Almighty oh, One, take up your sword and slay your enemies because you love the king. That's why it's a love song. And they sing of him as the most lovely of the sons of men. Grace poured upon his lips. Brethren, this is what it is. I, I, that, that text just struck me. I thought, you know, we, we know what that is. To feel such joy and affection and love. You just want to sing. And the psalmist, it's, it's just, that's, that's, that's the natural way of who we are. When our affections are such, that's a good, that's a good indication of something there. So that... Let me give you our, our second text here. That was our first one. Philippians 3.3. 3. They glory in Christ Jesus. Our second one, Psalm 73. Now we read this, of course, in our reading. Psalm 73. Let's read 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, we do well, brethren, to place Christ in these verses. I know that as the psalmist sings, he is addressing this to God in general. But don't think somehow that Christ is not in the midst here of what we're singing about and to whom we're singing to. There is a soul-satisfying feast that is laid out for all people who will come in Christ. And we, are, we have free access to it. You talk about love to Christ, brethren. This is what it looks like. It looks like a person who says, there is not only nothing on this earth that I desire besides Him, there ain't anything in heaven that I want beside Him. You talk about love for Christ, that's love for Christ. All the glories of eternal bliss in heaven forever. And this person says, I don't want any of it except Christ. You see, this is the one who realizes that a heaven without Christ is no heaven at all. What's the point of being there if Christ isn't there? That's right. To them, He is the object of their affection. None other than the Lamb who was slain, who sits upon the throne. David, he puts it another way in the Psalms. Listen to this, Psalm 17, 15. As for me, so he, he, you know what, we'll just look at that real quick. Psalm 17. Look at uh, 13 and we'll read down to 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. He's talking about those who are wicked. Those who are evil. Deliver my soul from the wicked. So you see that there? Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Yahweh. From men. Now watch what he says about these. These are the wicked. From men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. So you see, David says, this is what they're, this is them. Lord, deliver my hand from the wicked. Well, who's those? They are those whose portion is this life. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants, all those kind of things. Now look what he says in verse 15. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now, I don't have a lot of time to dig into this text necessarily, but what I want you to take notice here, what David is saying is basically saying, Lord, deliver me from these wicked men, those whose portion is this life, right? They're going to die and they have nothing left, right? And David is contrasting that with what will be the case at his death. And it's very interesting here that David speaks about his death as his awakening. That's how he, that's how he phrases it. And it's this way for the Christian, is it not? The Christian, they, don't, they no longer fear death. This is not something that's fearful for them. Just like Hebrews says, they're no longer uh, subject to lifelong slavery through fear of death. They know that their death is actually an awakening to behold the Lord in His glory, in His righteousness. And David says, I will be satisfied with your likeness. His satisfaction is in God, in Him, in Christ. He's satisfied with Him alone. Brethren, one thing that I can assure you is that the one who loves Jesus Christ 
when they find themselves awaken in the splendor and glory of heaven with Him forever, there will be one singular thing on their mind, and it's where's Christ? Where is He? I must see Him. I must, I must give Him that holy kiss of affection. Brethren, that's, that is their singular desire. Their singular desire is Him. And the other statement in that passage, go back over there again if you're, if you're gone, Psalm 73. The other statement there is one that, that will much more often touch us on a day-to-day basis because obviously none of you are dead yet. So what matters is not, not uh, there's nothing in heaven that I desire beside you. Now that's undoubtedly true, but, but what else does he say here? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Brethren, this is the one that much more tells in the here in the now about love for Jesus Christ. What is it that you desire on earth? The one who loves Jesus Christ. They will not allow the shiny, glimmering things of this world to draw away their affections from Jesus Christ. He is their first love, and they hold on to their first love. They're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Now, undoubtedly, they will go through Vanity Fair. They'll have to make it through that place, and when they do, they may be lured. They may be enticed by those around them to linger around a little bit, to buy some of their delicacies, and take part in whatever things they do there in Vanity Fair. But brethren, they remember Jesus Christ as their passion and their joy, that they want nothing else in this earth other than Jesus Christ. Brethren, I, th- there is something at the heart of that, that each man, each woman has got to ask themselves, what do I want more than Jesus Christ? Do I want anything more than Jesus Christ? Or is He sufficient for me? Brethren, Paul's words... To live is Christ. It's not just for the extraordinary Christian. They are for all people who love Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. is for all Christians. This is not just for the extreme. If they don't have Christ, they have no reason to live. Well, does anybody here know when... when Basically, when the Revolutionary War was taking place and we were trying to get away from Britain, does anybody know what the sort of cry was of the Americans? It's kind of a famous saying. You'll probably remember when I tell you. Give me liberty or give me death. That was the, that was the cry of these Americans that were entering into this war. Brethren, the Christian who loves Jesus Christ says, give me him or give me nothing. I will not be satisfied in anything other than Christ. Nothing on earth that I want besides him. Brethren, are you satisfied in other things? I mean, what else could satisfy more than Christ? Not marriage, not career, 
not money, not a new job, not a new car, not more children, not long life, not COVID going away, not a new president, not nothing. Nothing can satisfy you as Jesus Christ can satisfy you. Whatever things you long for in life, if you don't long for Jesus Christ, an infinite value more to the rest of those things would be considered to you as dumb. Brethren, where do you stand? Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now let me say something about this last thing. Love incorruptible. Go back to Ephesians 6. Is your love for Christ incorruptible? After all, that is what Paul tells us. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, he didn't have to add that last adjective in there, and he did. It's important. But what exactly does it mean? Well, let me give you just a few other translations. Maybe it'll help you get an idea of what he's talking. What is this love incorruptible? King James says, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Berean Study Bible, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Young's literal, now this is real literal, okay? <laughs> grace be with all those love our Lord Jesus undecayingly, <laughs> okay? Real literal, but, th- but you get the idea there, right? Undecayingly. It doesn't decay. Contemporary Christian. Now here's the opposite end of that spectrum. May God be kind to everyone who keeps on loving our Lord Jesus Christ. This word, incorruptible, it has with it, in all the different uses through the New Testament, this idea of imperishable or even immortal. When you get those those statements in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, those you'll have to put off uh, mortality and put on immortality. That's the word that's used there in 1 Corinthians 15. Immortality. So we're talking about a love that's imperishable. You know what imperishable is. You got a lot of stuff in your fridge that's perishable. Uh, At some point, after that date, it goes bad. You can't eat it anymore. This is imperishable, Paul's talking about. This doesn't go bad. It doesn't die. It doesn't decay. It doesn't break down. Brethren, Paul is giving us a blessing for all those who love Jesus Christ with a love that does not die out. He's talking about a love that cannot and will not be corrupted. So, do you have love incorruptible for Christ? Now, that may be, uh, in some sense, a question that is impossible to answer because you won't know it's, of course, un- incorruptible until you get to the end and it wasn't corrupted, of course. But that's not really what we have to deal with right now. What we have to deal with is, is where you are at now. Are you loving Christ now? Tomorrow, you love Christ tomorrow. The day after that, you love Christ the day after that. But brethren, we have to be determined here that our love won't be corrupted to continue day by day walking with the Lord Jesus Christ side by side to the end. To whatever your end is, whether it's in a hundred years or whether it's in the next 
10 minutes. You got to make it to the end, brethren, loving Christ. And I know if we search our hearts, especially if we search them diligently, we will probably find that oftentimes the love that we do have for Jesus is probably more constant in its wavering than it is constant in its devotion. I know that to be the case. But brethren, even in the moment of wavering, what do you think? What do you think? Do you say like Peter did our New Testament reading? John chapter 6, you got all these people. There they go away, walking away from Jesus Christ. And you know what they were called earlier in John chapter 6? They were called disciples. So all these disciples go walking away from Jesus Christ. And he looks to the twelve and he asks them, Do you want to go away too? And Peter looks to him and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brethren, there is promises of the new covenant. Jeremiah 32, 40, listen to this. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. Watch what he says. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Brethren, God is going to do something in His people so that they won't turn away. God is going to do that. God is going to put something in His people so that He will not allow them to go away. And that has often been a comfort for me at many different times. Brethren, in that season of my life, when people I knew were walking away from Jesus Christ, it's as though He turned to me just like He did to the twelve and said, are you going to go away too? Brethren, and in that moment, these texts were everything to me. These texts were everything to me. I, I would think to myself, if I go the way of these men, there's nothing left for me but an eternal hell. If I go the way of those men over there and I depart from Jesus Christ, there is nothing left for me but an eternal hell. And I was terrified. And I'll tell you right now, God put a fear in my heart of Him so that I did not turn away. I was terrified, brethren. And I, I remember, again, I, I know this is somewhat off track here, but I want to tell you this. When I, when I would find myself in those deep, dark places, it was like the devil was just bombarding me with all these thoughts and these doubts. And I would sit there and I would think to myself, but if I do that, I'm going to hell forever. And then I would think to myself, well, wait a second, why am I afraid from hell? If all of this is... If, if the devil is tempting me to say it's all fraud, just go away like they did, well, why am I afraid of going to hell? If it's not real, why am I afraid to go there? And I would begin to talk to myself, talk to the devil. What are you doing? You're trying to deceive me. I know hell exists, and if I go where you're going, I'm going there. Brother, there was a fear of God in me that kept me, and God put that fear in me. I began to ask myself, if I did go, where would I even go? What would I go to? Christ is the one that offers me eternal life. If I go away, what am I going to anyway? I got nothing out there. If I don't have Him, I don't have anything. And you know what? The second part of that verse, you know, that verse usually gets quoted, and that's fine because the first part of that verse is a good part. When it says, Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
But you know what? The second part of that is just as important. This is what he says. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see why Peter says, where are we going to go? Because they believe. They've come to know. Well, you're the Holy One. Where am I going to go? I know that you're Him. I believe. What If I believe that and I've come to know that, then what in the world am I going to go out to? i got nothing out there for me. There's no eternal life. There's no hope. There's no nothing. So, brethren, is it true? Have you come to believe? Have you come to know that Jesus Christ is indeed the Holy One of God? And if so, then you have even more reason to say with Peter, where am I to go? I, I believe, I know. I know that He's the Holy One of God. I know that He's the Messiah. I know He's the Savior. I know He died for my sins. Where am I to go? I got nothing out there for me. Well, then if you know the truth, and you know the Scriptures, right? How is it that you come to believe and you come to know? Is it by your own, is it by your own doing somehow? Did you just came to know? Or did God, did God give that to you? Did God give you that knowledge? Brethren, if you've come to know and God has been so gracious for you to open your eyes to who Jesus Christ is, do not trade that away for what you know is a lie. Because that's what it would be. If God has opened your eyes to Jesus Christ and you go walking away, you are going away to what you know is a lie. Because God has testified to you of its truth. Don't abandon your treasure. Brethren, don't sell your birthright for a measly bowl of soup like Esau did. Or don't desert the gospel work and Christ along with it for the things of this world like Demas did. You know that's what happened. Paul knew men like this too. You know, we can struggle, brethren, at times thinking, man, people just walk away. I don't, what do we do with that? But you know what? Paul had that same thing. You read in Philemon, Paul says, my brother Demas, co-worker in the labors. You go read in 2 Timothy and Paul says, he's deserted me for things of this world. Paul knew men that walked away. Brethren, do not give up your access to the garden of God for a bite of fruit. Don't give up Christ for silver like Judas. Don't sell it for that kind of thing, brethren. If Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure, brethren, do not let your love for Him be corrupted. Don't let it be. Don't leave your garden untended. You know how it is. If you have a garden and you leave it alone forever, what happens to it? Weeds? It dies, right? It's not going to grow by itself. You're going to have to take care of that thing. You're going to have to cultivate that thing. This, the, listen, this woman in Song of Solomon, she says this, They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Brethren, don't let that be the case for you. Don't be like that. You've got to keep your vineyard. You've got to cultivate it, nourish it, feed it, care for it. Brethren, you've got to draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. You know the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how often I've quoted these, this passage. This is, this, is, this is a glorious promise. He who, now listen to the way he phrases this. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see this? He who loves me. This is what Jesus is looking for, brethren. If you love me, he's asking, if you love me, 
I, my Father will love you, and I will love you, and I will manifest myself to you. Brethren, do you want manifestations of Jesus Christ in your life? I do. I do. You want manifestations of Christ? Brethren, you got to love Him. you got to love Jesus Christ to the end. Love Him with your all. Let me ask you, do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? Then don't depart from Him. Don't do it, brethren. Don't let your love be corrupted. Let me pray.